Hi, welcome to Infinite Leaders Live, the podcast that shares real life lessons from real life people. We're incredibly fortunate to speak to so many inspirational people from around the world, and we're delighted you've chosen to join us to listen, learn, and share. As usual, I'm joined by Alan Dunstan. Thanks, Lewis, and we're proud again to wear our Tsunami products. Tsunami is the number one choice for eco sportswear. And I'm really excited about today's guest, and he's going to certainly talk about the things you don't get taught at university or on any courses. And we love your feedback, so please get in touch. You can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and also at theinfinitelearners.com. Be better educators, be better humans. Alan, let's get stuck in. Well, get your pens and papers ready, guys. There's going to be some absolute gems of wisdom coming out of the show today. Kent Pickell is an education leader who has worked at school, district, state, federal, and university levels in the US. Throughout his diverse career, he has sought to bridge research, practice, and policy to help young people from marginalized communities learn and thrive. Ken is currently president and CEO of Search Institute, an internationally recognized not-for-profit organization that conducts applied research and develops practical resources that enhance the capacity of schools, youth programs, and other organizations to help young people be and become their best selves. So Ken, welcome to the show and tell us a bit about that famous relationships TED talk that has been so inspiring to Luis and myself. Um, well, thank you. First of all, thanks guys for having me on and to all your listeners, viewers um, for tuning in. It's great to have this opportunity to talk about this with an international um, audience. Search Institute, the organization I lead actually has a large history of working globally around our work that we uh, focused on with developmental assets in young people's lives which were the, the 40 strengths and supports that help young people grow and thrive. But we haven't yet had much opportunity to talk to an international audience on our new work on developmental relationships. And so this is actually really exciting. It's an open question in, in our minds. How do kids experience developmental relationships with adults differently across lines of culture and nationality? And we've looked at that in the US context, but we're very excited to start looking at it internationally. So this is maybe the beginning of a of a conversation. Um, the TED talk that I did a while back um, was an effort to try and connect a bit of my personal story to the professional story that we're um, engaged in at uh, Search Institute. Um, I start out talking a little bit about uh, the beginning of my career. I began as a teacher, a high school teacher um, in the US and then through some um, different things that took me off that path. Um, as you mentioned in your intro, my career really has focused on um, trying to connect the dots between three things in the US that don't connect very often, which are research, practice, and policy. And that's definitely true in education. It's also true in the US and many other areas that influence kids' development, like out-of-school time, foster care, child welfare. So the personal story was that I was um, a young parent. I was married to my uh, wife, Tanya. We had a six-month-old, a three-year-old, and an eight-year-old, and she was diagnosed with terminal cancer at um, stage four when we had a brand new baby. And um, she fought that disease bravely for two and a half years. And you can imagine sort of, you know, what that was like and what that did to our world. But she ultimately did not uh, win that battle, though I think in, in other ways she did. And I found myself a young dad with kids um, that were by that point, um, three, five, and 10. Like I just got the ages a little wrong, but um, the other backstory I actually don't mention in the TED talk, but I'll share here was my oldest daughter um, was actually my stepdaughter from Tanya's first marriage. And I had raised her with Tanya for 
eight years. And then her father, who had um, not been involved in her life, um, stepped up and claimed custody. And so uh, my wife died in May and my daughter left in July. Um, and now luckily we have continued to maintain that connection and she's a wonderful young woman now living out in the world and, and we've gotten through it. But you can imagine that was pretty, pretty traumatic. And so there was a moment at the time, my kids were in a wonderful um, uh, Montessori preschool here. And the teacher who is a woman, she and her husband had uh, come to the US from Sri Lanka. Um, as I brought the kids back into uh, that school, actually just my youngest daughter, Victoria, there was a seminal moment I talk about in the TED talk where it was the first day I brought her back and the woman Indrani followed me up into the parking lot. And she said, Kent, from this point on, it is all about the relationships, your relationships with those kids. The relationship is a thing. Um, and she was um, somebody in the TED talk, I almost wanted to try and imitate her really beautiful Sri Lankan accent. I knew I, thank God I didn't do it because I could never have done it in a way that wouldn't have seemed disrespectful. But when I hear those words, I still hear her talking in those terms. And of course I just sort of, then she went back down in the basement to lead the, the kids in this small preschool. And I was sort of left sitting there saying, it felt profound and the relationship is a thing. And what am I gonna do with that? Um, both as an educator and a parent, I'd been focused on everything except the relationship. You know, It was the sort of quality of the school my kids were getting or the quality of the teaching that I was doing, the curriculum, all this other stuff that is critical, but the relationship, had sort of been something that I kind of assumed would happen if the other stuff was right. And so there was just a period where for six years as a single parent, I really just, in addition to doing some work, by that time I was at the University of Minnesota, um, uh, I just put my head down and I focused on the relationships I had with my two kids, Adam and Victoria. And I'm pleased to say that they've done pretty well. And I, I got remarried in 2012 to Katie and we, we added her two kids, Thomas and Molly to kind of a blended family. But then when the opportunity came to go to Search Institute that same year in 2012, there was a question as to how are we gonna build on that, that legacy research that I mentioned in, on developmental assets, which was really the big picture, the ecological picture of what kids need to thrive. And there were 40 factors. And uh, Katie was a school principal at the time. And she said to me, I said, do you think I should apply to go to, you know, the search firm called me to go to search institute. I said, do you think I should apply for the job? She said, yeah, I think you should. I really like their work. I like that they're focused on strengths, but here's my problem. I got 800 kids in the school I'm leading. Three quarters of them live in poverty. I have all of these academic expectations to meet. I can't focus on 40 assets. Could you give me two or one to work on? And she meant that flippantly because she knows that there are 40, 50, 60 factors. But where we came back to, um, as my colleagues and I started to think in 2012, what about our work should be at Search Institute, that one thing is the relationship. It, all the other stuff matters, but the one thing, the active ingredient like fluoride in toothpaste or like the roots of a tree um, are those relationships we build with kids. And so since that time, we have been trying to zero in on what is in a developmental relationship. And then really in some ways, even more importantly, how do we build them? Um, that was a very long monologue, and I apologize. When you asked me about the TED Talk, I think some of my like wheels back to trying to put it together a few years ago kick off, and you end up getting a little bit of the language that's there. So, wow! Thank you for sharing that, Kent. And and that idea of coming back to relationships is huge, isn't it? And there's lots of different exit points from from what you've just talked us through there. And I'd like to to maybe hone in on 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 that moment in 2006. Um, your wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer and the following two and a half years, as you alluded to there, would have been incredibly difficult. 
can you can you talk to what what you did through that time to to manage your emotions, to manage yourself and the situation, and, and maybe give us a little bit of an insight into some of the things that really helped along that way, and, and also after your wife's passing, the, the things that you did to really try and you know keep yourself above the water and, and support those those children and your children in, in the way that you did. Um, you just said the perfect phrase. Um, keep my head above water that that's for the two and a half years Tanya was sick that's all I was doing like I wish I had a a soaring uh like transformative um key that I found during those years and but it was one foot in front of the other because um as she got progressively sicker I was also managing her medical care I was um you know doing most of the kid work and I was working full-time as actually she did she almost through uh the end of her life and so really for those two and a half years, it was just a process of um, getting by. And, you know, people go through periods in life that are like that. Um, and I think that's why that comment, and, you know, to some extent, when you do a TED talk, you, you to some extent you want to find, or not a TED talk, any kind of thing, you want to find one, one moment that crystallizes something. It wasn't as though I had never thought of this stuff. And then this one, this one, uh, leader of a preschool said this thing to me and suddenly I saw everything different, but it did crystallize it. I realized during those two and a half years when I was putting one foot in front of the other, I was not focused on really the relationship with my kids um, because it was really just about, you know, getting by. I was a, I was a good dad. I was a good husband to Tanya, but I was not um, sort of thinking deeply about other, either of those things. Um, I think after she died, the pivot point in my life, the two pivot points in my life were um, one, uh, what we've talked about, an emphasis on relationships first with my own kids and then in my professional life. The second that was just really tough is I had to give up a lot of other career aspirations that I had, things that I wanted to I mean, what both of you guys are doing actually working internationally, absolutely something I thought I'd do. Um, and I know you can, you can work in Saudi Arabia or Malaysia or someplace with, with a family that, that is possible. But for me as a single dad and given a lot of other different things, including the, the at the time challenged relationship with my stepdaughter, although I call her my daughter and she calls me dad, um, who had then moved to New York, it, it just wasn't in the cards. A lot of those things that I thought I wanted to do. And so there's a repositioning of what your life is gonna be about that you either do or you just end up kind of feeling uh, unfulfilled and, um, uh, like you're not realizing sort of your purpose on the earth. Um, and so for me, the pivot was not being in a school, not being leading a system. Here in the US, we'd call it a school district. Um, what you might say is on the front lines, which I have great respect for, which I think is where the most important work happens, to seeing my role as a capacity builder for people like you as somebody who is not as directly engaged in uh, direct contact with kids or direct leadership of educators, but is trying to lead an organization that helps people uh, like you, and I'm sure many of your listeners do what they do better. And, 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 and I've come to see that actually that is a gigantic missing piece in our field. If you look at the corporate world or you look at medicine, there are a zillion, some good, some not, consultants, capacity building organizations, nonprofits, think tanks. Um, we have comparatively few, comparatively few of those in education that are actually 
really responsive to the needs of people working directly with kids. You know, we have a lot of people who do research on education and publish stuff, but we have relatively few, certainly in the US context, but I think it's true internationally as well. We have relatively few what we would call intermediary organizations whose mission is to try and take what's working here and help somebody understand it over there. Um, and so that was the professional pivot I kind of had to make. And I unquestionably at times uh, look uh, you know, at, uh, over the fence at people who are in a more direct service role and think, geez, I should be there. But um, the good news is, um, although I keep getting shocked that I'm 53 at this point, um, I, I still have a lot of years left. And so I think at some point, I'm very, very happy where I am right now, at some point having the opportunity to apply the skills and lessons I've learned to leadership in a role that is more uh, directly uh, helping to guide uh, education and services for kids might be a next chapter. But I've had to kind of take a 20 year pause in that um, and have been in this sort of space between research and practice and policy during that time. So, so a big opportunity in many respects through a difficult time for you to step back to understand your sort of purpose and, and what you're trying to aim to do and what fulfills you and then an opportunity for you to try and, like you say, bridge that gap. Just for a moment, I just wondered if, if you could talk us through the, the things that sort of anchored you through that difficult time. Were there any specific tools or strategies or, or things that really helped you through what obviously must have been an incredibly tough two and a half years and, and then the process afterwards as well, that, you know, depending on, on, on reactions and depending um, upon your own personal thoughts and opinions, you know, that might have taken quite a while as well for you to try and get over such a tragedy. So I just wondered if you could speak to that a little bit and, and tell us some of the things that helped you through that really difficult time where relationships a huge part of that as well. I think the best, it's a great question. And of course, one that off the top of my head, I probably have not been, uh, I know I have not been self-reflective enough because partly, you know, I think through, whew, I got through those years, uh, thank God, you know, now here we are. I guess what comes to my mind immediately as you describe that is there was a process of what I might call hunkering down that then gradually expanded to, to sort of broaden my, my zone of concern, which is to say that after Tanya died and maybe arguably even before, I just had to like really let a lot of stuff go that I had always cared tremendously about, especially things that had to do with kind of ambition and accomplishment and things like that. And I just had to sort of say, okay, my zone of concern is gonna get much, much tighter here for a period. Um, and then progressively, I think as, you know, uh, especially as I, I knew my kids were gonna be okay. I mean, you know, you're never okay when you, you know, lose a parent and in the case of my youngest kids don't have a memory of your parent, which is a life wound that I always am concerned about uh, helping them heal um, as much as they can. Once I had a sense, okay, they're gonna make it, they're gonna be okay. And we did counseling for them and things like that. Then I could actually start to sort of broaden my zone of experience. And one of the things I decided to do uh, was get a doctorate because I had, I never thought I needed one before that point. And it was, I was already working at a university. And so I actually literally just had to walk across campus. Um, and I decided, uh, okay, I can do this. So in addition to being a single parent and working full time, I started you know, engaging in uh, uh, some higher level learning. And that was actually uh, conveniently where I met my wife, Katie, who uh, was in the same program that I was. And so there was a, a nice unintended consequence of broadening my world from where it had been in a way that was, that was, it was significant, but it was doable. It was proximal. Like I wasn't 
moving to you know London or something like that, I was saying, okay, let's let's uh, let's embrace a new chapter. Kent, there it's it's extremely inspiring listening to your story on the TED Talk, and it reminds me a lot about a book that I'm reading at the moment, and that you may have come across by Viktor Frankl about the man's search for the meaning of life. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely phenomenal. And I just want to explore that for a moment, where you've gone through a really bad time, and then you had choices to make, just like Viktor did in in the concentration camps. What then? How how did you then? make those choices to go on and do the things that you've done rather than going in a negative spiral that there's not many people that can pull through like you've just done and then be, be really successful as a result. Um, well, I, I appreciate that. I'm not, uh, yeah, obviously it won't surprise you that life doesn't always feel like that, but it's, it's nice to have that affirmation from the outside looking in. Um, I, I think that, um, the best answer I can give, and this is actually something I think applies to all of the work that we're all doing in different ways with kids, which is that um, progress, steps forward and progress forward leads to more progress forward, um, which seems like a sort of obvious insight, but I think that the, um, the, the counter experience, Alan, that you just drew happens for far too many kids, yeah. which, which is to say, when you take a and I know you're you're asking me about how I emerged from some difficult life tragedy, and of course I'm trying to apply it to you know helping a, a 14 year old learn to do maths. Um, so I don't want to stretch this too far, but when you exert effort and take a risk and take that chance, and then you actually have at least partial success, or if not success, some way to reflect on what you did, learn from it, and do better, it starts this positive cycle that actually can suddenly years later, you find yourself in a dramatically different place. But if we don't actually ourselves in our own lives or in our work with kids, help them take those initial proximal steps. And then I think there's there's a metacognitive piece to it. There's action reflection. I, I took the step, I did this, wow, I did it, I learned from it. And so in my case, it was a succession of some of those, you know, some of those, uh, those smaller steps that actually start that sort of a virtuous circle. And, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I really come both as a practitioner and in terms of even my own academic work previously uh, from the school of education, where what we study is learning and cognition and, uh, you know, Vygotsky and Piaget and all that kind of stuff. And that's really important. At Search Institute, I have uh, inherited and gotten to learn from a pretty different tradition that usually in the U.S. context, and I think often internationally goes by the name positive youth development. And it's a huge rich research tradition that um, Search Institute has been privileged to contribute to, but there are many other researchers around the world. And there's a zillion different aspects to positive youth development. But I think the insight that you just asked about is the key one, which is that there are, there are positive cycles of reinforcing mechanisms that we can help kick off in kids' lives. Um, and our work on relationships is firmly in that tradition. When you connect with a kid through a developmental relationship, and I know we're gonna talk a bit about what that means, then the kid starts to work harder in school, or then the kid faces the tragedy that they are dealing with at home or, or whatever it is. And then they actually are more able to engage in the relationship. And then the relationship is actually able to help them further reinforce that work in school or grappling with that tragedy. And there's this wonderful virtuous cycle 
that can actually kick in. Um, and I'm making it all sound sort of mystical and easy. And of course it's not, but I think that's kind of the best example that I, that kind of comes to mind both for my personal life. And then also, again, maybe trying, uh, to extrapolate it a bit to the work that we're all trying to do with young people. When you as a teacher, as a counselor, as a coach, um, reach out to begin to build that developmental relationship with a young person, it can have those spillover effects that you could never imagine um, happening in ways that actually may last decades beyond your direct interaction uh, with that young person. And, and you've taken some time, Ken, haven't you, to, to really consider the um, elements of a developmental relationship. I know from the TED Talk, you, you lay them out in a, in a really clear and a really concise way around expressing care, uh, challenging growth, providing support for, for children, sharing power and expanding possibilities. And that's, I'll be really honest with you, it's, it's something I've, I've had on my desk at work for a number of years now. Um, and I'm a huge believer in the line that you shared around relationships taking work. It doesn't matter who they are with uh, and, and in what context you have a relationship. They, they don't evolve naturally and organically um, at the rate that they would if you put some thought and some consideration and you really worked hard at them. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, those five elements of a developmental relationship and how they might apply to children and, and, and maybe to, to adults and colleagues as well? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that you have it on your desk. We were working with a school and as at least in the U.S. context, many um, assistant principals in uh, uh, U.S. schools just get stuck doing all of the discipline. Uh, so when kids come in, so the assistant principal in one of the schools we we're working with, he had the framework, which... Uh, your your listeners, uh, viewers can go to our website at searchinstitute.org and you can download the developmental relationships framework. So there's those five elements and underneath the five elements uh, are more specific actions that you actually can do to uh, bring the five elements to life. So there's 20. And this assistant principal had it on his desk and he said, whenever I have a kid come in for a disciplinary issue, I try and use at least two of those elements in my interaction at that critical moment. Um, because he was dealing with discipline, that meant he usually had to start with challenge growth, which is about pushing kids beyond their comfort zone. You know, hey, you can't keep skipping class, you can't keep doing it. But he said the transformative piece for him was he was going to combine it with expressing care, providing support, sharing power, or expanding possibilities. And so there was this mental model of, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about your skipping class or, or whatever it is, but I'm also going to ask you about your aspirations for the future, um, which was expanding possibilities. So very practical uh, uh, application of, of the framework. Um, where we are in our work on that framework is that we really have shown that when kids experience relationships that are characterized by high levels of those five elements, again, expressing care, challenging growth, providing support, sharing power and expanding possibility with their teachers, with their parents, and then with staff and out-of-school time settings, uh, again, in the US context, their social emotional competencies are higher, their academic performance is better, their risk behaviors are lower, so the associations are all in the right direction. One of the challenges that is gonna be very present for us as a research organization at the next phase of our work is that uh, appropriately, in order to show that one thing causes another, you need to do studies that often are called experimental studies, kind of like we, we see if a medicine, uh, like especially today a vaccine will work where you some kids get it, some kids don't. And that's where you can show that um, the relationships cause the good youth outcomes, which we believe is the case. Proving that requires doing those kinds of studies, but the whole problem is uh, relationships are not a program. They're not a, 
packaged curriculum that we can actually give to this teacher and not to that teacher. So this is a methodological challenge that we face going forward. Um, for your listeners who are practitioners, I think the main thing I would say, kind of oversimplifying all the crazy complexity that we all work with, is when you think about relationships, there's two things to keep in mind. One is intentionality and the other is inclusion. Intentionality meaning you exactly as that preschool teacher told me decades ago, you treat the relationship as a thing. It is as deserving of your um, energy and your discussion as a school community as the curriculum, as the instruction, as the discipline policy, as the other aspects. And the simplest way I've kind of found to summarize intentionality is that you think about relationships before, during, and after. Before, when you're planning, you actually, when you're planning your individual curriculum as a teacher or your school uh, improvement plan as a school, you think about relationships, what's the role of relationships. During is when you're in that moment of relationship with a kid, you are very aware, I need to always nurture the relationship. If you rupture the relationship, you got nothing. And uh, even when you're pushing a kid, you wanna strengthen that relationship. So you're conscious. And then after you reflect on relationships. I mean, we ask schools all the time, have you ever had a staff meeting devoted to relationships? Have you ever had training? Have you ever had you know, a personal conversation uh, as part of your evaluation about relationships? So that's intentionality. Inclusion, um, again, these are simple ideas, but not so easy to do in practice, is you're doing it with all kids. We have met few teachers or um, staff in, in youth programs, coaches, who don't build developmental relationships with some kids. Now they, they exist, but most all of us who get into this work with youth do it because we believe in the power of relationships. The challenge is, are you doing it with all of the kids? And that's both a practical challenge and sometimes it's a personal challenge uh, of how do I connect with these kids that are a different racial group, a different gender, a different socioeconomic background than I am. Um, and the reason, I would highlight both intentionality and inclusion is we've found a lot of practitioners who are one or the other, but not both. Um, there are people who are actually super intentional with some kids. They're like, that kid walks into this class, I'm gonna connect with them. He walks into my school building, I'm gonna connect. Um, but they're not necessarily inclusive. It's not happening with all kids. The, the, the less common, but still uh, observed, uh, uh, kind of practitioner is the inclusive person who's not intentional. These are people who are just like the relationship gurus. They're magnets. Like they can connect with the kid. They're in the hall. They're in the class. They're on the field. They can do this quite organically, but they don't plan ahead for it. They don't reflect on it. They don't try and continuously improve it. And so what we're aiming for is kind of a Venn diagram where in the middle, we have both inclusion and intentionality uh, coming together um, in ways that, um, are you know you know never perfect and as I was saying before never like a packaged curriculum, but that are quite observable in the culture of some schools and programs. So with those around intentionality, just to speak to that for a moment, would you would you have conversations with staff, with the educational leaders and teachers that have that attitude of, well, I'm just I can do that. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm good at that, and I make relationships, and that's fine. What, what's your take on, on, on that small minority or maybe depending on the school, uh, that small sample of staff that get that right and, and that already feel that that's happening organically? What would be the purpose of them to really start to unpick this and, and plan it and reflect on it? Well, one of the best things you can do to start to get to that is to hold up in your school 
the 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 staff who really are master relationship builders. We do too little to acknowledge that as a practice that is deserving of um, of of celebration and learning. You have to be a little careful how you do this. You know, you don't ever want to um, uh, <laughs> you want to have people sort of um, you don't want to set staff against each other in any way. But um, if you ask kids in almost any school, and we do this regularly, which teachers or which staff are really good at building relationships with striking frequency, they can tell you with great clarity and oftentimes great similarity who it is. And we have to unpack that a little because sometimes kids will name, especially younger kids, the, the ones who are most fun. And that's key, like that's really important. We can't say it, but a developmental relationship is not always fun. Developmental relationships um, uh, can at times be very challenging and pushing. And a lot of our best athletics coaches are the, are the masters of this where they, they really push kids hard but the kid, and the kids welcome it. So you have to frame the question right, but you can very often uh, in informal ways find out who the kids in your school or in your programs think are re really good at relationships and you can have them uh, share the things that they do in a staff meeting, you can start to hold it up. What you're aiming for is not like, there's one way we're all gonna do relationships. You're aiming to elevate relationships to a practice. And so it's something that we actually, as a school community, um, we, we talk about, we think about, we seek to inculcate. That, that doesn't immediately sort of um, kind of shut down the naysayers that I think just to, 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 that you were just referencing, but I think in most experiences, those people also want to have great relationships with the kids they're working with. And so if you start to give them some tools, give them some resources, it's a journey that most of them want to make. A lot of us who are involved in change initiatives, both in education and also other areas that serve kids, we frankly have to deal with initiatives that sometimes our, our people don't really want to undertake, you know, a new curriculum you have to adopt, a new program you have to adopt, a new inspection regime you have to undertake, all that stuff. This is not like that. This is something that the people in our field want to do and they need space to do it, support to do it, tools to do it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's often not a hearts and minds problem. It's a practical tools problem that, that we're just in the beginning stages of building out some of those tools. Would it be right to maybe consider that the education that the children are receiving is important in that? And, and I haven't phrased that particularly well, but what I mean by that is for, for children to realize who the people are that lead them that are good at building relationships, the children need to understand what a good relationship is, right? And, and, how that, and how that develops. To, so do you find that that's quite circular in, in, the, in the educating of the children and the educating of the teachers and the better understanding that comes of, of recognizing the teachers that make the good relationships and the teachers themselves recognizing the need to make good relationships? Yeah, more and more we are, um, we've really been at this work intensively for six years now, arguably uh, seven. Um, more and more when we work with a school or a program, we are encouraging them to introduce the, the relationships framework to their students. Initially, it was something that was really for the adults so that they would be doing these things more, more intentionally and more inclusively, and that's critical. But increasingly, we're saying, tell your students, and we have a series of activities where they, they learn about the framework and then they do an act, activity where they map the relationships in their own life is one of the most effective ways to do it, but you also can just do it through a, through a, you know, a dialogue and a conversation. You say, you know, when people study what helps young people succeed, they see that relationships that have these five things 
are really, really good with helping young people achieve their own goals. It's not just about helping you do what I want you to do in my class, in my school, but achieving your goals. And then you say it's caring, challenging, supporting, sharing power and expanding possibility. And the question you pose to young people is, do, do you have that in the relationships in your life? Um, and so very often when you start to do that, it's exactly as you were just saying, the young people actually begin to think about, hmm, I might accept this teacher pushing me harder because I know they really care about me. Um, but until you've actually made explicit the, 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 the purpose of that relational interaction, the, the thing that we hear from a lot of kids, and it's striking, and this again in the US context, we regularly hear kids say, that teacher hates me. But, I mean, we, frequently we hear that. And when you actually think about an adolescent, assuming this, uh, this adult hates them, I mean, of course the adult doesn't hate them. And that's to some extent just overblown developmental language, but they're interpreting that kind of interaction as, as, as in a very interpersonal way, as dislike or something. And until you actually have that relationship with kids and say, hey, this is why I'm doing this. I mean, it's making it explicit. Um, kids will in, intuit reasons for your, your actions that are actually quite contrary to what you're intending. So even with kids, it's making the relationship a thing. I fully get that, Kent. And there's a bit of a movement in the international circuit about Maslow before Bloom. And it, it's certainly mm. it's got a quite a it's got quite a big following on Twitter. I, I'm interested here to explore not just the student-teacher relationship, but I'm interested about staff-to-staff -staff relationships. Now, both Lewis and myself have have been in new schools this year, uh, and we've spent a lot of time building sort of connections with with new staff. And I wonder if you've got any advice regarding making connections with staff-to-staff. -staff. Uh, and, and how you can then really form a strong bond moving forward to then help the students so that they then see that if the staff get along, then maybe that's what we need to be doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as our work has started to get a bit more you know, traction as a nonprofit, it's always you know, tough to get the studies funded and then get the work out there. Just one reason why your podcast is so helpful. We've seen a growing number of uh, schools and programs first adopt our framework for their work with youth, which is what it was designed for. That's what the research was based on. And, and then what has been increasingly coming onto our radar screen is they start to um, use the framework for their staff to staff relationships. They start to ask, well, gee, if we're using this framework for our relationships with kids, shouldn't it be our relationship with each other? So shouldn't we express care, challenge growth, provide support, share power, and expand possibilities? Um, I'll just say from our perspective as a research organization, that's super interesting. Um, I think it is highly deserving of experimentation. We have not done research on that because there is a large body of research on things like trust in schools and on school culture. And we have not yet tried to validate the use of our framework for staff to staff relationships in, in a rigorous way to show that it actually correlates into uh, better school culture or, or better youth uh, student performance. I will say it's a very appealing idea though that is explicitly on our future research agenda. Um, so not that the, your, your viewers out there can wait for us to get the research funded and done. What I would say more immediately one of the most powerful exercises we do with staff is we have them take our framework um, uh, looking at um, 
care, challenge, support, sharing power and expanding possibility. And we have them do a short one page reflection on who did that for them in their youth? Who did those things for them when they were young? And then we have them share across their team. These might be teachers who have worked together for 20 years and they have no idea who was the developmental relation for you. It's an incredibly powerful exercise. I know this might be a little obscure, but I put the tool in a, in a free article I did for the Journal of Youth Development. So if you go and if you, if you Google Pekel, P-E-K-E-L, you can download that tool. And we're also gonna be making it available on our website starting in the spring. We're gonna be launching a new, we're gonna be launching a new digital hub to put all of our tools out there in one place. Cause right now we don't, we don't have that, but you don't need my tool to do this. You could, you know, you can, you can introduce the framework and you can say, let's actually get to know each other as colleagues through the lens of our own development. The one caveat I will say to that, and I had this happen, I remember vividly once I was down in Chicago working in an alternative school with the whole staff, very, very high need school. We were behind like three locked doors and alternative school. And we did that exercise and there was one woman who uh, started crying and she looked at her tool. We call it the, the developmental relationships in your development tool, the DR in your development tool. And it was mostly empty. She mostly, there's 20 lines on it and she didn't have names. And she ended up saying, I don't know how I made it. And it prompted, luckily it was unlike sometimes when I do it and have a hundred teachers there, it was a small, small group. Um, it prompted an amazing discussion, not only with her colleagues about her own development, but about other kids in their school who probably are having a similar um, experience. And one reason why for them stepping up, the, the thing as a facilitator, we talked earlier about my sort of, I've, I've kind of found my role is more working with the people who work with kids. What that experience taught me was before I ask people to do that exercise, I always say, which I didn't that time, there's no right number of people on the list. You could have one name on this sheet and lot 19 lines blank. You could have 20 uh, lines. Um, there is no um, sort of threshold for number of relationships in development that correlates to good outcomes. Sometimes one is enough, like just my mom, just my grandpa. Sometimes, you know, uh, six aren't needed. So whenever we do that little exercise, now I try and um, lower the um, stress level by saying this is a reflection and sharing exercise. It's not a scientific diagnostic instrument. Um, and if your own experience was one that was not rich in developmental relationships, that's actually a powerful contribution to make to kids in a school community. You yeah, mean, I completely, oh, sorry, Lewis. I'll, yeah. I just want to expand upon that, Lewis, a little bit yeah. with, with some of my, our own experiences this year. And uh, in starting in new schools, we do something called, uh, with the staff called an autobiographical project, which we've done with the children as well. Mm. It's, it, it's something that I think has been really powerful, particularly in my school, where I found out more about the people I'm working with, which therefore then helped the working relationship. And I know from doing that, I can then deal with that member of staff in a different way than what I would have done if I didn't know Absolutely. about their personal life. And I'd just like to just for you to go through the four S's. I know the four S's from the podcast, uh, from the TED Talk are, are, are very powerful. And I think if you could just touch upon them for our viewers, they'd be great. I would. Let me just super briefly echo what you were saying about the sort of getting to know um, 
sharing both with each other as colleagues and also within a zone of appropriate distance with kids, life stories. There's a, a researcher, William Damon, who's at Stanford University. He spent his whole career studying purpose. Um, and in, in a book that he wrote called Purpose, there was one line that just jumped out at me. Um, and he said, in all of my years of observing educators in schools, and he's an older guy, he's been doing it for a long time. So in all my years of observing educators in schools, I have never once seen a teacher explain to their students in a positive way why they entered teaching. That I'm not just here for a, a paycheck. I'm not here because I couldn't get a better job. I'm here because, you know, X. And I'm not sure if, you know, th that was William Damon's comment, not mine, but it really struck me that you're leaving off the table a powerful tool with kids for saying, I'm here because I want to be here, because this is what makes me feel fulfilled. This is what uh, makes me happy. Um, in terms of the four S's, the four S's is a simple interview protocol. We've tried it with like definitely thousands of kids, not directly, but through our partners. And we created it at the request of a wonderful organization in the U.S. called Communities and Schools that, that is in 2,500 schools across the U.S. And they work with the highest need kids in the school. And they said when they, when they, they literally have a person in the school who gets paid for by communities and schools, but they support the educators, they broker social services, they do goal setting, goal management. Um, they started as a dropout prevention program. Now they've gone into other things. They said, whenever we get a new student on a caseload, we do this long inventory of all the stuff in their life, their problems, their things like that. And, and it just is kind of death. It sucks the, like it's valuable data, but it sort of sucks the life out of their first moments with that student. They said, could you create just a simple alternative initial, it's really for, for communities and schools, and they called it initially an intake instrument, but that is relational and conversational. And they eventually, they do get to collecting all that other data, but, but ultimately, so what, what we created was this four S's interview protocol, and you can get this for free on our website. And it actually builds on Search Institute's research on developmental assets, but also incorporates the relationships. And the four S's are sparks, strengths, struggles, and supports. Um, your spark is what you love to do. It's a passion, it's a talent, it's an interest. It's when you feel full, alive. If I told you, you could get up in the morning and do anything, you would think of this thing. And so that's where you start with kids. The, um, the second is the strengths. And um, what comes to mind very immediately for people with strengths is my abilities. And that's a piece of it. But really importantly, what we've learned in doing the 4S's interview is that you need to explicitly also include the idea of values, what I believe as a strength. So, you know, and these are kids, so they may not like say things like, you know, um, conscientiousness or something like that. They may say being there for my family, but that's a strength. So you're naming abilities and values as strengths. Then you get to struggles. And that's what do you, usually the way we pose that is what do you worry about? Um, and if you wake up at night thinking about something that you're concerned about, what might it be? Um, what you'll hear from kids in, in the struggles uh, section can sometimes just be the normal challenges of adolescence, but sometimes it'll be profound trauma that could deeply influence that kid's involvement in a school, but that would never come out. I've, we've had multiple people, especially through that communities and schools project say that stuff emerged in the struggles discussion that it would have taken a month to find out because um, it was something happening at home, things like that. And then um, finally, are your supports. What are the places? So not just um, people, but what are the places uh, and people, um, situations that make you feel most yourself, make you feel safest? 
Um, and the sequence of the four S's really matters. You start with sparks, which it's very easy for the vast majority of kids to talk about. You know, not all, but the vast majority of kids can say what I love to do. And often it's a sport, it's, it's animals, it's music, it's something like that. Sometimes it's reading. Um, the key there is to validate it every once in a while. Not much, we've seen someone start to suggest that somebody's spark is not a particularly good spark, especially if it involves like video games and things like that. And no, 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 you're gonna affirm the spark. Then you go on to strengths uh, where you got them talking about themselves in that positive sense. And it's not until you've talked about sparks and strengths that then you get to struggle where you hopefully have laid some groundwork. And this is not like a five hour conversation. It can be done in, can be done in 15 you know, minutes. Um, and then you get to supports where you come out of the struggle, you don't leave it there. And you're talking about where you feel good. The, the, the really key thing, last thing I'll say about 4S is in addition to the fact that the order matters, is that the second thing is, it's just so critical that you don't just do this once and never come back to it. If you do it and it is never mentioned again, then it seemed kind of perfunctory and insincere. Um, so you can come back to it in a couple of ways. We have some activities that are very simple to do where for instance, you have kids put their sparks um, on a post-it note and you place them in the classroom and you just try and have people guess whose spark is whose. Um, so, you know, it'll, and kids usually don't know this about each other in many cases. Um, or you just come back to it through informal conversation. You ask, you know, if the kids spark here in Minnesota, where I am, um, it's starting to snow outside. If it's snowboarding, you ask after it snowed one weekend, did you get out? Did you snowboard? You know, and for the kid, they're like, wow, you remembered that snowboarding is my, my spark. Um, and the same thing, of course, is especially true with the struggles piece, finding ways to come back. So if you come back to it, and some people have even made like a, a class roster where they actually have got those four fours listed down and then they actually try and intentionally go back and touch on one of the four s's at regular intervals with certain kids i know that can sound overwhelming to um, your staff out there your listeners who are super busy um the good news though is almost in every case it's really interesting stuff it's stuff that you like to talk about with kids and kids like to talk about it does require that you make time for it <laughs> so um, it's something that has to be done in a setting where it doesn't feel like, don't do the four S's interview when you have four minutes with a kid uh, in a super busy classroom before you start instruction. I mean, that's, you do need a, you do need to make some space for it. Yeah. And it sounds such a, a worthwhile thing to do, Ken. And it, you know, going back to what Alan mentioned um, a little while ago now about staff role modeling that and, and, and obviously staff showing the connection and staff showing an understanding of one another, of who each other are is only gonna have a positive effect on the children. And I know you mentioned there that you, you, you sometimes come across colleagues that may have worked together for years and years that know each other on a very surface level, sort of superficial um, understanding of, of, of maybe likes, dislikes, names of children, names of, of friends, um, favorite foods, favorite colors, and, and actually the deeper stuff and, and the bits around the four S's as a model, which is a, an incredible takeaway and a really usable sort of concept to, to be able to apply. The power that that gives once you have the understanding and that relationship that is developmental and starting to be a little bit deeper than the superficial level is only gonna help connection, is only gonna help you achieve success. And I, I'm a huge believer that that is something that really takes that time to invest in. Yeah, and you know, again, especially recognizing that school leaders, individual teachers, counselors, practitioners are, are, are facing competing demands for the time. I think one way to think of building relationships is go slow to go fast. 
it sounds like when you know you were just talking alan earlier about some of the stuff you've done in new schools to build those discussions and relationships that does take time and there's a cost benefit you know you could be talking about curriculum or fill in the blank um down the road not down the road like years down the road months down the road that investment will pay off in your ability to uh, move new initiatives to deal with crises more effectively because you've laid that groundwork um there was one school we were working with when we were building the 4S's interview and they wanted to do it day one of the first school year, it was a middle school, day one, right at the beginning. And then I was just there with the teachers and the principal and we were in a planning meeting and all the other things they needed to get done started to come up, distributing the laptops, um, doing the discipline policy, getting the lockers, all these things. And they had just a certain amount of time in essentially what they called an advisory period when they could do stuff like this. And just as I sat there in the conversation, by maybe 20 minutes of, of listing all these things, the 4S's interview was now in the middle of the second week because it kept getting moved back. And it, it wasn't hard for me as an as a improvement partner to say, hey, do you see what's just happened? Now we've kind of, we've done all of this process and your, your, your desire to start with this protocol has been, has been bumped back. Could you distribute the laptops later? But that was a big deal because they needed the laptops for other classes. So it wasn't, these aren't easy issues. It's a trade-off, but um, they put they they ended up putting for us as in day one, uh, session one, because they felt like um, doing that is going to help with those other uh, objectives that they needed to get to eventually. Last thing I should super quickly say about the four S's is whether you use it with kids or we we do use it with um, adults all the time too. You 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 literally list the four S's before you start. You don't just sort of launch in. You say I want to know your spark, strength, struggle, supports, and the it. The simple logic of that is you want to be conveying, I, I want to know your whole self. I don't want to know just what you're good at or just what your problems are. I want to know these four things. So you simply say there's these four S's and we're going to talk through them. Um, and, uh, and, and that's just a, an important thing so that they feel like you're on a journey and the, the relational journey and the journey is, is headed somewhere, especially with kids. Yeah, I, I love that, Ken. And I think I'd like just to explore here then, you're obviously talking about a relationship-focused school, both staff and student. So as we wind down the podcast, could you now clean slate, what would be your wonderful relation-focused school? How would it look? How would it feel like? We actually have um, new research that we're doing on this, that a beta version of this will debut in spring uh, 2021. But we're talking about um, schools, of course, are, are central, but we're talking about relationship-rich organizations, the organizations that serve young people. Um, and uh, first of all, there is, if you think about relationships as the roots of a tree, which we do, the critical insight about the fact, because it's relatively easy to think about, trees grow stronger if they have deep and healthy roots, and so that kids can grow, they can thrive, they can withstand the what life throws at them. But the reason we've also adopted that tree metaphor is that the health of the roots is deeply influenced by the quality of the soil and the air around it. And that's the organizational context for, for schools. And so on the um, really important side of, of some bedrock underneath those roots are structures that enable relationships. You have time for relationships. You provide staff with professional development on relationships and opportunities to collaborate on relationships and you provide them with some practical tools like the four S's interview. You integrate relationships into your hiring. You make it explicit 
when my wife was a school principal, she'd say there's a three-legged stool I'm looking to looking for when I hire teachers. There's their content knowledge of the curriculum. And she said, I'm pretty good at assessing that. And she brought in other teachers to assess that. There's instruction. They'd have them teach a lesson. They'd pay a lot of attention to their previous uh, school, school experiences. But the third was relationships. And she would say, that's the hardest to assess. Um, and so you hire for relationships and you integrate relationships into your evaluation processes. So that's the bottom, that's the bedrock. But then um, I think many of your listeners will be familiar you know, with the old phrase, culture each strategy for lunch every day. The other piece is that intangible, the culture, that's the air that's out there. And I think what we're thinking is that there are there's skills and there's mindsets and that there's a set of relational skills that staff need both with kids and with each other. Many of those are contained in our framework, but not all of them. One that's not in our framework that we're thinking more and more about that we've kind of talked about here is appropriate vulnerability, sharing something of yourself. Um, and so there's those skills. And then there's the mindsets. It's that what we've been talking about this whole podcast, I see relationships as a thing. Um, so when we have those skills, those mindsets and that bedrock, the roots can grow and the tree is going to be uh, more successful. And so that's some work that we are very much uh, in the midst of uh, synthesizing findings from a major three and a half year project uh, where some of those characteristics have emerged and we'll be releasing them and then we'll be um, testing them and seeing if we actually uh, find out that our hunches uh, have any merit. That's, uh, that's exciting. We look forward to, to reading and, and, and watching that, Kent. Um, we're going to start to wind it down a bit now. We've got a few quick fire questions for you. We, we've talked a lot about relationships. For you, what's the one most important factor in a relationship? Uh, caring, uh, expressing care. If, if you weren't here, it would matter to me. You matter to me. I would miss you. Um, the key, though, is that caring is necessary but not sufficient, and that's where you need the other stuff. Okay. Good answer. Great answer. Okay, then. Three world leaders, dead or alive, who you'd like to go out for an evening meal with, who would they be? Oh, my gosh. So that's such an interesting thing. Three world leaders that I'd like to go out for an evening meal with. Um, I would... Um, Maybe I'm thinking of it uh, because of both of your uh, country of origin, um, Winston Churchill. Uh, I almost named my son Adam Winston, but my wife um, objected, thank God, actually, in retrospect. Um, <laughs> uh, I, would, I would allow to do that. Um, thinking about world leaders sort of uh, eclectically and broadly. I'm gonna pick someone who is a hometown hero here in, in Minneapolis where I am, um, whose music has been a huge part of my life. I would like to go out for a, a meal with Prince, the rock star, super genius performer. So I know that's leader, but I remember when he died and you know he died here in Minneapolis, but I mean, you know, the Eiffel Tower and London Bridge and everything was colored purple from Purple Rain. And so I think of like, you know, how does somebody who grew up like a couple miles from me here have that kind of global influence? Um, and then I guess I'd have to say at this moment of uh, deep, deep uh, division in my own country here in the US, um, I would like to go out with Barack Obama and try and get his candid understandings. I mean, he's done writing and he's done things like that, but I'm sure there's a million things he can't say about actually uh, where we are as a country at this pivotal moment, especially on issues of race. Um, his current book is, is, is very good and has a lot to say about that, but I'm just guessing, especially because I know I think he likes to drink mart martinis 
if I got him uh, to drink one, um, I might get a little uh, different level of insight from him. So those are three off the top of my head, kind of random. Yeah, That's a really good question. A, a cheeky martini and a cigarette, Barack likes, doesn't he? I'm, I'm That's reading, right. I'm reading the the Promised Land at the moment. It's a fascinating yeah. read. Really, really cool. Um, last last one for you, Ken. Um, we just mentioned books. Tell me what what you're reading at the moment, or a book that you have just read that you'd recommend. Uh, this is so, uh, it's funny because I never, um, I'm not going to give an education one, but after he just died, John le Carre, um, the spy master, I, I just read my first book by him because I've never read any. And so I read Agent Running in the Field. And the reason I mention it is because when you got, you were asking um, about the personal journey that I've had and sort of some of the things that um, I did to kind of get through the loss of my wife and things like that. One of the things that literally for, I think, at least 20 years has fallen off my life is reading fiction. I have gotten to where I'm always reading something about psychology or education or organizational change or something like that. So literally over the holidays, I, I because, because Lakari just died, I said, you know, I should read one of these guys, this guy's book. He's like a legend. Um, and uh, it was really good. I didn't like the ending, but it was really good. So I'm like... I figure after 20 years now, I ought to start reading fiction again uh, it's a, it's instead a, of just being. It's a good yeah. shout. I was having the exact same conversation with a friend of mine the other day. He, he mentioned a couple of fiction books and it wasn't even on my radar. I was like, I, I don't, I haven't read a fiction book for ages. He said, well, do Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It is. It, yeah. It, it, it resonates. I read a couple over the Christmas holidays where, yeah, I went back to the old SAS books that I used to love reading and stopped. I put down the education stuff and it was, it was, a, it honestly, it was like, different world it was so, it was so nice just to take a break from that yeah it really really it really is and there are so many different uh things we all can be um we, we all can be sort of trying to fuel our minds with so i hope it's okay to give that answer instead of something that's uh, a little more uh, lofty and central to the stuff we've been talking about certainly is keep it real ken thanks a lot for your time today I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation thank you guys really appreciate it uh, guys, search Infinite Leaders Live on YouTube and IGTV. We're also on all podcast platforms. And remember to visit theinfinitelearners.com. We'll see you next time. Stay safe. Thanks, Ken.